The China in Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg. The ACRP aims to improve the quality of reporting on Africa-China relations through reporting grants, workshops, and other opportunities for journalists. More information at africachinareporting.co.za and our dedicated training website at africachinatraining.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Network from SubChina. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, the senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good morning to you, Kobus. Good morning. Kobus, I'm not sure if you've been following the news from here in Southeast Asia, but the conditions in Ho Chi Minh City, where I am in, in Vietnam, are dire. And the COVID situation is is getting extreme. We've been under lockdown now since August 23rd. You have to understand that this is a country on a normal day where the majority of the population gets up every morning and struggles to kind of get through the day to make enough to kind of get through to the next day. It's really, in many cases, a subsistence country. And so the fact that we've been in lockdown for this long now, going into three weeks, it is incredible to think that after 35 years, a country that last dealt with famine back in the 1990s now has hunger. And I mean, it gives me chills just even thinking about it, that it's happening in the city where I'm at right now. And by no means is Vietnam alone in this condition right now. I mean, COVID has disrupted food supplies, it's disrupted behaviors, it's disrupted economies, and it's done so much. And so it's now bringing back into the discourse, into the conversation, the questions about agriculture, food supplies, and food security. And this is especially the case in Africa. And that is something that we're going to be talking about today. The UN says that Africa is especially vulnerable to disruptions in the food supply. According to UNTAD, that's the UN Conference on Trade and Development, Africa imports about 85% of its food from outside of the continent, leading to an annual food import bill of $35 billion, and that's a figure that's expected to triple within just the next few years, and one assumes that's largely due to the population growth that's happening. Now, this heavy reliance on imported food also leaves African countries extremely vulnerable, and in the old days, that vulnerability was expressed in the form of conflict. So the big culprit in creating famines in places like Ethiopia was the war with Ethiopia and Eritrea. Many of us remember that. Uh, And across the continent, that was the case. But today, it's actually far more complicated than that. We also have to factor in both the climate and, of course, what's going on here in Vietnam is also happening in many parts of Africa as well, related to COVID. Let me just give you a few examples of the situation that we're seeing today in parts of Africa. Madagascar is on the brink of experiencing really what scientists are calling the world's first climate change famine, according to the UN. Uh, This is a situation where tens of thousands of people are already suffering what they're classifying as catastrophic levels of hunger and food insecurity due largely because of the lack of water and drought. And that's what we're seeing across Southern Africa. Cobus, two years ago, South Africa was in many ways weeks away from running out of water. Similar situation happening elsewhere, but up in the Horn of Africa, in the Tigray region of northern Ethiopia, it looks like about 900,000 people are facing famine conditions. 
and more than 5 million people are in desperate need of humanitarian assistance. That's coming from USAID. In Ghana, the World Food Program reports that hunger has increased by 30% since last year, which is the highest level in a decade. Kobus, all of this it comes at a time that makes the conversation so important because what we're hearing, what you and I in the conversations that we've been having with folks uh, who are you know follow China-Africa relations, is that agriculture is going to be a very big topic at the upcoming Forum on China-Africa Cooperation Summit that's expected to take place later this year in Dakar. Because the key question that I have, and I know this is on your mind as well, is whether the focus is going to be on building markets for African agriculture in China, or if the Chinese are going to work to do more to bolster the food supply in African countries. Well, this is the issue, right? It's, it's, it's how do you balance the need to make money from agricultural exports with the need to, to build a, uh, you know, a solid solid kind of food secure base at home and those two aren't necessarily in conflict but one needs to kind of work out how it's going to work um the other issue of course is also how how both climate and food issues relate to all of these other issues so you know as as you say as you showed like it's it, it affects both peaceful societies um and societies in conflict like in ethiopia um and in some cases it tend, you know kind of it tends to spark more conflict so the connection between these issues and climate change, the connection between it and uh, between them and food and uh, peace and security, are all going to affect not only Africa's future but definitely China's future in Africa. Well, let's get a perspective on the food security situation in Africa and also the prospects for what countries like China can do within the context of what people call the South-South Dialogue or South-South Cooperation. This is where developing countries cooperate with one another, and we'll find out some more on that. Amma Branford Arthur is a Senior Partnerships Officer in the Resource Mobilization Division at the International Fund for Agricultural Development. For those of you not familiar with IFAD, it's an international financial institution that is a specialized agency of the United Nations. A very good morning to you, Ama. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you very much, Eric and Kobus. I'm really happy to be here with you, and thank you for having me. It's wonderful to have you, and it's a very timely discussion given the situation in many African countries and the work that you do at IFAD. Let's talk about the state of the agricultural sector in different African countries. I laid out uh, a rather dire situation in places like Madagascar, in Ghana, in parts of Ethiopia as well. From your perspective at IFAD and somebody who's worked in the agricultural sector for a long time, can you just give us a, a broad overview of where we are in certain regions in Africa and how the situations that I detailed, are those representative of a bigger issue or are those exceptions? Well, it's a bit of a, it's a, bit of a mixed bag, really, Eric. Um, I would consider that uh, primarily uh, the fact that uh, we are where we are now is, is due to the fact that agriculture plays a very significant role in Africa. Um, in most countries and overall on the continent, it, the, it, it's the largest uh, employer for, for most of the economies on the continent, um, about 60% in most African countries. And so, of course, anything that affects agriculture affects the livelihoods of the citizens of, of the country and the citizens of the, of the continent as a whole. Um, I don't think that uh, COVID is the immediate uh, reason for the issues that are facing agriculture and, and by extension, the, the livelihoods of the people of the continent. I think these are issues that 
come from a long uh, time ago. They, they, they stem from quite a few challenges that have bedeviled the continent. Of course, there's climate change, which we all know is particularly important in, in considering uh, as the situation of rain-fed agriculture, which is, which is uh, the norm for most smallholder farmers, especially women farmers. Um, with the changing rainfall patterns, we have seen that planting uh, has become a bit of a hit or a miss, as a result of which, of course, production, of course, also becomes a bit of a problem. We, we have seen issues around uh, inputs to agriculture, which are increasingly uh, expensive. Uh, perhaps in, in certain situations, the overuse of uh, fertilizers, especially the chemical kind, which depletes the soil and makes it difficult to gain the, the products that, or, or the levels that people are used to, to obtaining. Then there's the drought, which, which of course is, is an issue. Um, in addition to, to climate change and uh, the related issues, we have the fact that the demography of the continent itself is shifting. Um, there's, there's rural urban migration, which, of course, affects a great deal the, the farming uh, profile. Uh, so there are mostly old farmers uh, left on the farms to farm while the youth uh, come to the cities and outside of the continent to look for non-existent jobs and, and often die in the, in the process. Uh, farming is not a, a sexy undertaking, largely because there's very little uh, governmental and policy support for it. And so um, not many people are likely to venture into a sector where there's a lot of uncertainty. I think there's, I mentioned policy, uh, I think that um, governments really owe a responsibility to supporting uh, policy frameworks that um, look at the livelihoods of smallholder farmers in terms of the constraints that they face, particularly access to farm finance, to, to markets, uh, the ways of transporting their produce. A lot of the time, especially in the rainy season in my country, I, I come from Ghana, a lot of the time the food is locked up on the farms because the roads are so bad that it's impossible to bring uh, the produce to the markets. So there's a lot of uh, issues that build up that leave us in the situation that we are now. But of course, um, COVID has exacerbated the situation and, and transformed what was, you know, a growing problem to a real crisis that whose effects we're probably not likely to see now, but give us a couple of years when the cycles come together and it will be quite an issue. Over the years, I've spent some time in, in a lot of development seminars. Um, and, you know, one, one, of the, one of these statistics that one always hears is that Africa has, has more arable land um, than most other, most other kind of parts of the world. Um, and, that, you know, for, and that's one of the reasons why it's potentially this kind of agricultural export powerhouse. Um, at the same time, all of these structural problems that you've mentioned, um, you know, mean it, 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 it's not really... Really living up to that potential, um, do you do you foresee as a do you foresee kind of industrialized agriculture as a as a you know as a robust kind of development potential for Africa, um, or would we be facing a lot more problems than we'd be solving? Uh, Gobus, you come up with uh, with with a question that 
you know, has so many as, uh, facets to it because a lot of the time, the error I think we make is 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 assuming that what has worked in in one context can be easily transported and and replicated in another context. It doesn't always work out that way because the systems that exist in in certain societies do not allow for, for example, easy mechanization. And again, forgive me for using my country as an example. I, I remember talking to the agricultural minister from Malawi and uh, he was telling me about his visit to Ghana and how huge swathes of land were just lying there, he thought, uh, underdeveloped, but in, of course in dire need of mechanization to ensure food production was effective. In Malawi, the, the land tenure system is totally different from the way that it is in Ghana, where the land is uh, held by the chiefs very often and, fa and families either inherit the land or just have a leasehold on it for a certain number of years. Um, when, when you have a situation such as that, um, doing large-scale um, industrial, industrialized farming, mechanized farming is a bit of a challenge. And so we cannot... We cannot just talk about mechanizing agriculture in Africa uh, as, as a blanket um, solution. We do have to examine each country's context, each, sometimes each region, each, each, each hamlet's context to understand what is valid for them and then be able to craft appropriate uh, mechanisms and solutions that will solve those issues. And so you can understand that it's as complex as the different countries in Africa. And I know that often uh, people make the error of thinking that Africa is just one big uh, green continent, which you know very well it isn't. So um, unless we can do that, unless we can find opportunities and, and have the luxury, sometimes it is, to sit down to craft appropriate uh, solutions for the context that we're in, I think uh, just looking at mechanism, uh, mechanization as a, as a silver bullet would be a bit of a, a reach. Okay, so if it's not mechanization, then what is it? And the reason I ask that, because we're looking at a population today of, and you probably can tell me more precisely, about 1.2 billion people on the continent, between 1 and 1.2 billion. And looking at UN data right here, it says that uh, there's a 95% prediction that uh, the UN has that the population by 2030 will be between 1.65 and 1.71 billion. That's a rather significant growth. So if it's not going to be mechanization, and please don't misunderstand me, I'm not advocating for US or European style large-scale industrial agriculture because that has a whole set of problems, but it's not sustainable that Africa can continue to import as much food as it does today. What will it take to create a, a food ecosystem and an economy that is more self-sustaining? Well, I, I, think, I think that that's the question that has resulted in the UN Secretary General uh, declaring the UN Food System Summit uh, for 2021 as focusing on food systems transformation. Um, uh, this is not a question that I think I of myself can can answer because it is such such a hydra headed uh, situation that 
um, it, it's I, I appreciate what you say that you know you are not contesting that mechanize, mechanization uh, would be a solution. It's it would be one of the solutions, but there are so many initiatives that would need a, a radical uh, review, a radical transformation, a radical overhauling. Um, whether it is in the policy area, whether it is in the way that we approach our gender uh, for policies, whether it is in the way that we look at our youth, whether it is in the way that we look at um, uh, the way that we produce uh, what it is that we do, um, whether we look at strengthening uh, farming cooperatives, we look at strengthening formal arrangements for production. There's so many areas that we need to look at. And such platforms, such as the Food System Summit that is coming off in October, um, would provide the platform, I hope, where we would not just go, the, the policymakers and governments and important uh, influencers, especially the private sector, uh, would go to assess the situation that we are in now, which I think is clear to everybody. What is less clear is how we are going to move forward. In my humble opinion, unless we do a great, uh, unless we 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 take a concerted approach, a, a holistic approach that um, addresses the various areas that are problems, we probably will not get very far and we'll have this. You know, we've had live aid, we've had various conferences on, on farming and poverty in Africa, and it's a cycle that, for me, uh, uh, is disturbingly familiar. There is something that is not working. And unless we sit down and sort out what it is, I'm afraid, Eric, that we're going to be having this uh, uh, a similar podcast in a few years where we come back to the same questions. And so for me, it goes beyond um, picking the solutions and trying to resolve them. What we do need is a, a structured discussion on how we're going to approach the problems that we see. What, what kind of role do you see for, you know, for, for foreign entities um, in, in developing this field within Africa or, or taking this conversation further? Because obviously agriculture has been, for a long time, has been a, a space for NGO engagement. And, you know, we particularly cover Chinese engagement in Africa. And, and you know, you know at the last FOCAC summit in, in 2018, there was a pledge of 500 Chinese advisors being dispatched to, to Africa. There's, you know, many, many d Chinese initiatives in, in agriculture in Africa at many different levels of it, including market expansion within China and, you know, kind of technological help, like, you know, experimental farms being set up and so on. Um, you know, when you see this kind of like foreign foreign involvement in the African agricultural sector, um, where would you like to see more involvement and where would you like to see less involvement? You know, what kind of involvement has been helpful and what hasn't been? Um, thanks, Gobos. I, I think that involvement in other countries brings new ideas and new interventions that in some contexts are good and others can be uh, rather inimical. Uh, let me let me my area of of work uh, in in the International Fund for Agricultural Development is in South South Cooperation. South South Cooperation is a growing um, development collaboration cooperation modality in the sense that 
um, uh, it is it is increasingly recognized as a process in which um, developing countries, two or more, never mind the number, uh, will pursue their own national capacity development through the exchange of knowledge, of skills, of resources, of technical know-how. Um, it, it, is, it is a method by which there's a, a clear-eyed assessment of what it is, the activities and the interventions that will support development, that will support effectiveness, that will support especially uh, smallholder agriculture and rural development. Now, China, I have to note, is a leading uh, proponent of South-South and Triangular Cooperation. Um, IFAD, my organization, is working extremely well with with China. And, And the reason I think this is a successful collaboration uh, not only uh, China with, with us, but also with uh, several U- United Nations agencies, is because China is willing to share the experiences that it has garnered uh, as it has proceeded on, on the pathway towards development, as it has succeeded in chalking up a number of milestones in terms of poverty alleviation and poverty um, uh, extinction, as it were, and and for us, uh, the knowledge that China shares, the knowledge that other countries, Indonesia, Thailand, Brazil, that they share, is is such knowledge as will be relevant to our own context or to the context of other developing countries, and so. When we talk about South-South cooperation, we also talk about South-South and triangular cooperation. The triangular aspect being where international agencies such as IFAD uh, will broker strategic partnerships that uh, will bring the knowledge from one end to the hunger that is, um, and hunger for, for knowledge, as it were, that will transform into alleviating the, the hunger from, from physical hunger or economic hunger. And so South-South and Triangular Cooperation is one of the ways, I'd like to say, in which foreign um, in interventions, foreign um, interactions with other countries can be effectively tailored to the context in which they find themselves. And I'm, I'm more than happy uh, to talk to you about maybe the specific contributions that we have uh, uh, undertaken with the support of the Chinese government and other, other agencies. Well, I'd like to get to that, but what I'd like to better understand is what does the South-South cooperation I mean, that's you go to a lot of development seminars and you read a lot of academic papers and they talk about South-South cooperation, South-South development. Koba said he went to a lot of these seminars. What does it actually mean in practice? Can you give us some tangible examples that people can get their heads around as to what does South-South cooperation, either with China or any other partner, as it plays out in, in Africa? Absolutely, Eric. Um so, so I've I've given the the definition, as it were, of what we consider to be South South cooperation. So effect and, and triangular cooperation. So effectively, it is if 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 you want to reduce it to its simplest terms, it is it is learning from the other experiences from the experiences of other um, countries, other um, contexts, other societies, and 
leveraging that knowledge, adapting it to the context in which one finds oneself. So when I when I look at the practical examples, uh, and, and again, I, I will take China because it is relevant to this context and to our conversation. China was, was both a recipient of IFAD's investment, but now uh, we see it as a very significant contributor to uh, the work that IFAD us, which is primarily uh, uh, focused at smallholder farmers. Uh, and, and that comes both in terms of financial support, which is always very appreciated and very welcome, but even more so in policy engagement, in setting up, in supporting governments to set up systems that will strengthen institutions, improve the capacity of the, the pro- produ- productive sector, and ensure that what they have learned is able to Uh, be promoted and transformed and replicated through technology, through innovations, and through inclusive production and and other business models, such as business-to-business linkages and other agricultural and non-agricultural activities. So um, South-South Triangular Cooperation is not just like a wishy-washy way of looking at um, um, interventions in countries, but actually in the ways that it can promote in investments and trade among developing countries, it is a way in which we can look at uh, transforming the agricultural sector uh, in, on, on the continent. Let me give you a couple of examples that um, we have here. So China and IFAD uh, set up in, in 19, I'm sorry, uh, uh, the, the late 1990s. Uh, the the China IFAD SSTC facility. So uh, China gave seed seed funding of ten million dollars. So there's the investment right there uh, to to IFAD for the fund to look at opportunities through calls for proposals for projects and programs that will support collaboration and partnerships among countries of the global south. Now, we've had uh, three calls for proposals, uh, under which the third of which is ongoing right now. But in the first and second calls for proposals, 13 um, projects and programs have been identified that are, are operating in about 40 countries that are deploying South-South cooperation. And so they look at they look at uh, ways in which um, different thematic um, thematic uh, areas of concentration let, let me look at uh, one of the, the projects, uh, the Inter-Africa Bamboo uh, Smallholder Farmers Development Program. So this this is, is a grant in the amount of $500 that is supporting Cameroon, that is supporting Ethiopia, uh, Ghana, and Madagascar uh, to support the, bam- the bamboo value chain uh, to enhance the connectivity among bamboo experts from developing countries using China as a focal point, considering that country's expertise and growth and strength in the bamboo sector. And and what it does is it is supporting these different countries, focal points in these different countries, to exchange experiences and also to set up uh, ways for industrializing bamboo production in their respective countries. 
at the beginning we we mentioned um, that there is this kind of inherent tension in the issue between national food security or then continental food security at the idea of 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 Africa producing enough food to feed its own population, and then also many discussions about about the possibility of of agricultural exports, um, and in in some cases those would be you know kind of would would also mean different crops you know um so for example you know a country like angola is is increasingly selling blueberries for example in in, in south africa you know which wouldn't wouldn't count as, as you know as, as some kind of like like a way to, to feed the local population population necessarily so i was wondering if you could reflect a little bit about how ifad sees that tension and and you know kind of an, and and what kind of discussions ifad has with african with african stakeholders on how to balance those two different forms of agriculture Kobos, if i understand you correctly you're talking about agriculture for uh, nutrition for for food security household food security um versus if you like uh, there comes the tension agriculture for economic uh, empowerment it's it's not only that it's you know kind of it's it, that that's certainly you know a, a big aspect of it but it's also you know it's the, the the tension between between also agricultural as a form as a carrier of national culture and national history um you know and and, and you know, just the way that it is in embedded in 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 the kind of in the local compared to the need to anticipate kind of market demands the you know to to um you know to try and kind of like position oneself in in foreign markets and with that then the the decision to whether for example is is one planting cassava you know for to you know that that local people would want to eat or is one plant you know are, are you planting um, roses for example to 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 export you know to you know to try and kind of get a foothold in in the international flower market for example so those kind of like decisions about how to how to use you know finite national resources like soil and water yeah that's a tough question but um when when um if at if at's approach to agriculture and and to the collaboration with countries is not uh, at the level of just supporting the smallholder farmer to to improve his 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 nutritional situation it's not just that i think that we are well aware of the tension uh, if you like in terms of uh, limited uh, land um, in terms of um, the the different um, calls on the the national economy for example to make sure that you you earn money whilst ensuring also that your citizens are well fed and that is the area in which uh, ifad is looking to grow that's that's the mission really that's the vision that uh, ifad has not of the perpetually impoverished smallholder farmer but a smallholder farmer that moves from his level of production to being supported by the government by the private sector to looking at implementing or scaling up um, agricultural finance models that are of benefit uh, both in terms of production and in terms of 
economics. And so it's almost like making sure that you grow enough to feed yourself and then you grow past that uh, to be able to earn uh, an income. So that, that of course, as you're saying, uh, is a bit of a tension. It's, 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 um, um, if, if, you, if you think that, if you see how much income you can make from exporting roses, like you, you mentioned, as opposed to growing a cassava that will uh, provide Gary for hungry uh, school children, then that is something that uh, you actually need to sit down and, and review and, and, and tackle. Um, and, and if it is in, in ensuring that there's a clearer line of sight uh, in, in terms of land that is kept aside for um, for production, for, for production of food crops, as opposed to uh, initiatives that the government ring fences for commercial enterprises, then it really has to be the, the recognition by African governments that um, there, there needs to be a commitment to um, assessing who are the key players in both spaces and what kind of support would best fit their uh, own context. Now, of course, um, that is the work that IFAD does by working with governments to identify through their own national development agenda um, the ways in which IFAD interventions can be most beneficial. And so our interventions do not only um, confine themselves to agriculture, to farming, if you like, but also to looking at how uh, to set up um, uh, frameworks, uh, um, systems that support uh, various value chains in, in increasing their production, either for food or for economic benefits. I don't know if this responds to your question, but most certainly it is one that uh, I don't think we can uh, sufficiently respond to within uh, uh, this context. I do think that it requires perhaps more uh, interrogation of what the issues are um, and then the ways in which uh, uh, digital technologies, uh, different advances in different spaces, ICT, can be used to support both food production and economic ventures. We talked about at the top of the program that FOCAC is coming up later this year. We don't know exactly when, probably sometime in November. As Chinese and African leaders convene and prepare to get back together again for FOCAC, given that FOCAC is one of the main forums that agricultural issues are discussed between Chinese and African leaders, what would you like to see them talk about? What are some of the issues on the agenda? Where do you want to see the agricultural engagement go going forward? Obviously, IFAD has a perspective on this, but what are some of the things that people should be thinking about ahead of FOCAC when it comes to agriculture? I think that's one of the key areas that need to be um, explored further um, in Africa is the engagement of the private sector um, in agriculture. I think that the private sector, we, we, you know, would, if they engage in anything, would not be doing it for altruistic reasons. And so there's even more uh, emphasis for them on ensuring that it, it is successful and that it is, it is sustainable. I think that 
that is one area that would should be an area of focus uh, during this this summit uh, a, a summit I, I have to say in which ifad has also participated in these last years i believe uh, the last one that you referred to was in uganda wasn't it that was face to face eric Kobus, the last focac was in china yes it was in, in beijing in 2018 prior to that it was in south africa oh okay so it must be it must be a different conference that i'm thinking about china does have I went to one uh, Fokaka, which was uh, a bit different uh, in, in the sense that it had an A tag at the end, and that was in Sanya, just before the, the pandemic. That's right. Into. They have lots of sub-conferences on different tracks. So agriculture is a track, you think tanks, journalism, military, and whatnot. So it's, it's probably one of the sub-tracks that, that you went to. Indeed, indeed. So as I was saying, so I think the private sector and its uh, engagement in agriculture is an extremely important area. Another area, I think, is the youth. I think that Africa's youth um, is a rapidly growing um, sector of the, uh, of, of the population. But then we all know the challenges that they are up against. Um, if, if it was bad for us growing up, I think it's worse for them now because there's, there's far less, in their opinion, far less to look forward to, far, far fewer opportunities for them uh, in uh, formal employment. And, and uh, increasingly, the call of the West uh, is, is, is louder, more strident, and appears uh, probably the only option out. And we know what the issues are in terms of migration, in terms of the deaths that we've we've seen as 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 uh, the youth uh, try to make their way across to the continents, particularly of of Europe. So the youth focusing on how to integrate them into food systems uh, in a way that will uh, play on their own capacity to innovate, uh, to think out of the box, to look at systems and, and processes that will increase the production uh, opportunities and, and the, the economic uh, opportunities for themselves and for the the general uh, population would be two key areas that I think would be an area to would be would be areas to focus on. Just finally um, you know we we mentioned uh, climate change through throughout um, and I was wondering um, you know obviously climate change is this big complicated kind of slow moving but also fast moving problem Um, so I was wondering you know kind of how not particularly how one would mitigate the, the, the challenges of climate change itself, but how will planning, planning for the future of agriculture, how will that have to change in order to also be able to plan for climate change? Kobus, is that my question? You're assuming that we can plan for climate change in the first place, which is, which is a hugely, um, uh, I, I would, I would, I would, uh, contest that. Uh, look, um, I, I've, I've just, I've had a long time uh, back in Ghana due to our being permitted to telework, and I've been back in Rome since the beginning of August. We've had so much heat here; um, it's, it's unprecedented. And, and I know that in the U.S. and, and in other uh, uh, situations, you know, there's, there's been heat waves that have also resulted in wildfires and, and uh, serious droughts in, in many countries on, on the continent. You mentioned in Africa, you mentioned uh, droughts um, in Madagascar, uh, where you have climate change famine, where you can directly attribute uh, the famine that uh, is either imminent or ongoing to the effects of climate change. 
Kobos, I, I, I don't know that one can plan for climate change, but I do know that one can um, try and, and put in place, uh, put in place, put in place initiatives that can counter to some extent to, to the, the, the effects of, of uh, drought and, and, and related climate change uh, uh, issues, the fallout from climate change. Um, I'm thinking on, on, as I speak because I, I'm thinking about what it would mean in practical terms. Um, I, I would assume that countries such as China have, have had that experience and have a, a way of um, exchanging that information, uh, looking at um, ways in which they have been able to counter uh, the effects of, of, of drought and, and of climate change. But it's such, it's such an issue that I think that it would go beyond just one country uh, implementing or supporting other countries to implement such interventions. I do think that uh, we, we know the, the calls for doing something about climate change, that we, we know that something needs to be done. We know the percentages that we need to achieve in order to avoid that tipping point. Although now that rain has fallen uh, at the North Pole, uh, as, as we heard uh, earlier the, this year, I, I don't know if we haven't reached that tipping point yet. Um, I, as far as I'm concerned, um, if we don't come together to to look at ways in which we can tackle um, the situation, to, to, to look at the increasing danger of water farming, of, of, uh, dry, uh, of dried up water bodies, of polluted water bodies, of, of the different reasons for having the situation that we have, I, I do feel that this will be a more rampant problem across the continent than it is now. Uh, so one country cannot go it alone. Uh, uh, in the spirit of South-South cooperation, this is a clear example of how we need to pool our resources and our thinking together to ensure that what affects La Côte d'Ivoire does not affect Ghana, but that, that La Côte d'Ivoire and Ghana, for example, are able to work together to address the issues that uh, bedevil them. That will ensure that uh, this situation is, is effectively curbed to the extent possible. I don't know if this is a satisfactory answer. To be honest with you, I don't know if there is a satisfactory answer to at the end of the day because we're, we're just, we're, are we at the tipping point? Have we crossed the tipping point? We don't know, but I think to Kobus's point, it's a dire situation that requires unprecedented action. And up until this point, we haven't seen the governments that are impacted most by this mobilized to do something in such a way that it really speaks to the urgency of the moment. So we're hoping that now that the global north is suffering from climate change in very direct terms, as well as the global south, that people will, will actually come together. So let, let's hope. So I take your optimism there very well. Emma Branford-Arthur is a senior partnership officer in the Resource Mobilization Division at the International Fund for Agricultural Development. She joins us on the line from Rome. Thank you so much, Emma, for taking the time out of your very busy schedule to join us. If people want to learn more about the issues that you work on at IFAD and IFAD in general, where can they find you? 
Okay, so they can find uh, my my information on our website, so www.ifad.org, and um, I, I will respond to the extent that I'm able. Well, thank you, and we'll put the link to IFAD's uh, information in the show notes. And once again, thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Eric. Thank you, Kobus. It was a pleasure. Kobus, throughout the discussion with Ama, I kept thinking to myself that China is at once the solution or part of the solution, and there's a lot of experience that China brings to this debate that Western countries simply do not. China is a country of smallholder farmers that is very similar to the situation in many African countries. China is a country that has been dealing with endemic drought and deforestation. That, too, is an issue that is endemic to a number of African countries. There are a lot of parallels, and China's experience is very applicable to the conditions in many different parts of the continent, because given the fact that China itself is almost a continental-sized power, it has that diversity of ecosystems that really is applicable and relevant for the discussions. That being said, China is also a big part of the problem. And, and I'm wondering if in these conversations with stakeholders between those, you know, at those meetings and those conferences that they all go to, you know, China's consumption of beef, China's consumption of electricity, China's use of fossil fuels, all of the different things contribute to the problems that Global South countries are encountering and what you've been writing about uh, quite a bit this year in terms of the obligations that global north countries have, and in this case, I do consider China to be a global north country rather than a developing or global south country, to people in Africa, given the fact that African countries, like those in developing regions like here in Southeast Asia and whatnot, are bearing the brunt of climate change and food insecurity as a result of that. Well, you know, kind of there's, yeah, I agree with you that China, China occupies this really interesting kind of hybrid position between global north and global south, because in in a lot of cases, its, its experience is directly applicable to the global south. So, for example, you know, China is is one of those countries that is managing to to bridge the 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 trans the transition from smallholder agriculture to mass industrial agriculture. You know, kind of without going through the kind of intervening kind of you know several decades that that that, that you know transition took in in Western countries. So China still has a robust smallholder agriculture system now and is yet also producing at scale. So you know, so 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 being able to kind of integrate those systems in a way that doesn't necessarily just chase smallholder farmers off their land um, is extremely important. You know, and and China is also extremely innovative in 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 terms of agriculture. It's like I, I read um, a report recently that 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 showed that China. Um registers more than twice as many patents uh, agricultural patents per year than than the US um, so so it's all it's all very interesting and innovative and and you know kind of and I think China China's obviously China's history of agriculture has a lot of lessons to teach Africa as well at the same time there's all of these issues around you know <laughs> around for example you know this kind of thing of, of, of like should one produce stuff for 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 consumption at home or should one produce sexy you know, um, sexy kind of products that can be sold in international markets. I mean, the, the the discussion in Africa about how to get into the Chinese market hits exactly that point. Um, you know, and, and China has kind of like diversified the options on the one hand and is adding to challenges on the other. 
Do you remember a couple of months ago, actually I'm dating myself, maybe six, nine months ago, we spoke with Lu Xinqing, who was in Mozambique at the time, and she was with a group called Agra. She wrote this great piece for us where she talked about how Mozambican farmers find it easier to sell stuff to China than it is to sell it across the border to another African country. And I think that's a very interesting dilemma here as well, is that until the AFCFTA, the African Continental Free Trade Agreement, really brings measurable reforms to, to ease the burden of trade in Africa, we're going to face a situation where it's easier to sell rice to China than it is to sell rice to Ghana, Rwanda, or anywhere on the continent. So that is a burden on African stakeholders to fix. Then the other thing is what we've talked about on a number of occasions is product diversification. Rwanda is not going to sell coffee to Kenya, right? So we need to have more diversity in what Africans need to consume. In terms of China, I think there's another interesting parallel that is worth considering. China has about 20% of the world's population. It has about 10% of the world's arable land. It will never be self-sufficient with regards to food. It will always have to be importing food. Again, that's a blessing and a curse, as we've talked about in this program. On the one hand, it presents an opportunity for Tanzania to sell soybeans to China. On the other hand, it's a curse because Tanzania is selling soybeans to China and not selling protein and energy and food into its own economy or into neighboring economies as well. So I don't know where we go with this, but it is, again, China sits on both sides of the ledger. That's where I keep coming back to. It's both a source of these problems and a solution to these problems and uh, and uh, a really, you know, compelling and important kind of development example, like agricultural-led development example and counterexample, you know, because there's a lot of things that China did that, that I think African countries would want to avoid. And then there's many things that they would want to emulate. And like, like how all of those shake out and who makes the decisions about those and how do you integrate them across borders? Those are all these really crucial questions you know, to which climate change has now thrown this whole extra set of complications into that discussion, you know? So, so it's, yeah, it's, it's really complicated. What's interesting is that over the years, big agribusiness from the United States and Europe, like Monsanto and others, have tried to make inroads into Africa. And there's been this collective pushback on that industrial scale ag- agriculture, that it's just not for us, is the message that you keep hearing out of African thought leaders, farmers. First of all, the politics of land reform are very complicated, but even if that was possible to build the US-style industrial farms, it does seem like that is not the direction that most places want to go. Even if it will produce a bounty of food, but it will come at a price that a lot of people are not comfortable with in terms of the quality of the food, but also culture and the politics of redistributing land. As you know, Cobus, from your own country, land is an incredibly sensitive issue. And, and the idea of building these massive farms would result in a redistribution of land that could be politically toxic in many countries. So it's interesting in that context to rethink the importance and the value of the South-South cooperative framework, because in many places in South America, Southeast Asia, China, and whatnot, again, it's coming from a point of smallholder farms, which may be much more relevant and acceptable to an African point of view. What's your take on that? Well, the only countries where this kind of large-scale infrastructure, this kind of really these kind of farms that like the size of Wales, you know, those kind of those kind of initiatives, the only places where they work 
is in places with histories of settler colonialism, you know? Um, so, so that is where there was some kind of way where people were forced off land. Um, and that, so that's, for example, an exa- you know, why, why the one country in Africa where you see a lot of that is South Africa. And South Africa has, a, has, has very large kind of like, you know, agricultural exports. Um, but it's not, a, it's not a system that you could, that you can bring in now because it causes such disruption, you know, like particularly, particularly to, to the environment, but also to livelihoods, you know, kind of like in, 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 in societies where, where kind of unstructured and unorganized urbanization is already a problem that will just like, you know, through, throw fuel on that particular fire. So, so, you know, kind of, I think in that sense, I think China is a really compelling counterexample because, so we, we recently, um, our partners at Development Reimagined did an interview for our site um, with the, the, the economist Chang Chang, who we also interviewed in, in the podcast in the past. And he pointed out that one of, one of the interesting kind of you know, models that can be taken over by, by African systems is a Chinese model where they do practice large-scale agri- agriculture, but they do it in a way where all of the different landholders are leasing their land to to a few farmers in the community, not external big big ag companies, but actually to 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 the best producers in their communities to then expand their production, um, and then everyone gets a cut. Um, you know, so so that kind of the, those kind of Chinese kind of innovative, you know, kind of models might be very interesting. But what the the first thing that 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 people will tell you in, in Africa is that the issue of land tenure and who really owns the land has been so messed up by by the colonial process and the post colonial process. And here, South Africa is example number one. Um, that even doing that is extremely difficult. Um, you know, because in some cases the the land tenure system in China. It was just so much more, even despite you know all of the disruptions in the 20th century around collectivization, is still so much more organically part of the local culture and the local systems than it is in Africa, where frequently local people find themselves alienated from the very systems within which they're supposed to be producing food. Um, so, you know, so so it's just yeah, it's just it's one of these situations where every complexity you open up ends up opening up 20 more even worse complexities. It's so interesting the point you make about settler colonialism and the link to industrial agriculture, because of course that was the same in the United States, where they you know, either occupied, colonized uh, native land. So again, settler colonialism, that's very interesting. I never thought of it that way. Uh, one issue that we never got to in our discussion, and I wish we had, is also talking about maritime agriculture and the question of the blue economy. We raised that with our discussion with Wu Peng and, 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 and the Chinese role in that. That's an issue that I do hope that African leaders are going to take a tough line with the Chinese at the upcoming FOCAC summit, because I don't think that the Chinese side has lived up to its promises in the last FOCAC action plan, where it committed to support African countries in the development of a blue maritime economy, when we've seen the role of the Chinese distant fishing fleets be particularly toxic in many countries. So we'll focus on that uh, in an upcoming podcast. We've got some guests lined up to talk about Uh, Chinese fishing off the coast of Ghana. So stay tuned for that. So that'll do it for this edition of the show. These are the topics 
that we talk about every single day in our newsletter. You guys hear me always talk about the newsletter and the website. We're just so excited about the growth in our audience recently. Thank you to all of our new subscribers who've joined us and the community. We have this great conversation going every day, uh, you know, through the newsletter and, and, and all the topics we're covering right now. Lots of discussion right now about the coup in Guinea, and that's especially important for China given the fact that China sources 55% of its bauxite from Guinea. So the folks in Beijing are watching what's happening there very closely. We are covering it from all angles. And if you'd like to give our newsletter and our website a try, go to chinaafricaproject.com slash subscribe. You can try it out free for 30 days. If you don't like it at any time, you can cancel. Just get the, the newsletter and the website and you can access all the archives. We've indexed thousands of stories by country, keyword, topic. It's a great research tool for journalists, scholars, and policymakers alike. So once again, chinaafricaproject.com slash subscribe. So that'll do it for the show. Kobus and I will be back again next week with another episode of the China in Africa podcast. Until then, for Kobus van Staden in Johannesburg, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. Or follow the guys on Twitter. Eric's at Iolanda, and you can find Kobas at Stadenesk. For more information about the China Africa Project and to sign up for our free weekly email news brief, go to chinaafricaproject.com. <laughs> <laughs>